Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on One. Tonight on Drama on One, Existentialism, written and performed by Joanne Ryan and directed by Veronica Coburn. One woman goes on a quest, a quest to uncover the ifs, hows and crucially the whys of reproducing her genes. Family, friends, fertility experts, fortune tellers and the dark recesses of the internet are all consulted as she tries to figure out, should making a life for oneself involve making another? The programme contains strong language and adult themes from the start. With Eamon Hunt, Georgina Miller, Rex Ryan and Joan Sheehy, this is Existentialism by Joanne Ryan. Nineteen sixteen, the birth of the Irish nation and the birth of my granny, my mother's mother. She is one of ten children, none of whom would be educated. 1922, the first Irish constitution is written. 1929, the selling, publishing, distributing or importing of any publication that relates to contraception or abortion is banned. 1935, the sale or advertising of any contraceptive is criminalized. 1946, the sale and distribution of any book that advocates the unnatural prevention of conception is prohibited. Not coincidentally, this is also the year that my mother was conceived, the third of my grandmother's eight unavoidable pregnancies. It was the 22nd of January, 2015. My mother had been calling all morning. I hadn't answered. I was in the throes of a particularly harrowing hangover. Jesus. The kind of hangover that comes with a fear that makes you ask big questions. Not just, oh, fuck, what did I do last night? More, oh, Jesus, what have I done with my life? Felt like my ears were bleeding. I hadn't brushed my teeth. I was avoiding the harshly lit bathroom mirror because I knew that in it I would see runny mascara and the sins of my ancestors. Welcome to your voicemail. I love my mother. You have five new voice messages. I really do. I owe her everything. Hello, Joanne? Joanne, will you pick up the phone? Joanne? Calling you for the past three quarters of an hour. Bye. Joanne, I keep bringing you. Will you answer your phone, please? I want to have my breakfast. I'm getting really annoyed now. Joanne, I just want to wish you a happy birthday. It was my birthday. I was 35 years old. A vast age that my mother was struggling to come to terms with. (coughs) Hi. Thanks. No, we've been through this. I'm 35. No, I was 34, and then time passed, and now I'm 35. Don't bless yourself when I say it. I can hear you. Yeah, I'm sure I'm 35. And I'm mainly going on your evidence, because you're the one who registered my birth. Oh, okay, all right. I'll I'll see you later. Around six? No, sorry, at six. Yeah, I won't be late. Quarter to six. Okay, perfect. Love you. Bye. Jesus. Some dose when your own mother can't cope with how old you are. I kind of get it, though. It does sound different. Thirty-five. If I was killed in an accident now, it wouldn't be that tragic. Middle-aged, single, childless woman, Joanne Ryan, died alone of complications resulting from a hangover in her rented flat this morning... 
widespread ambivalence to the news due in Maine to her advanced years. She is survived by... Surely your family can only say they survived your death if you nearly killed them while you were doing it. When Joanne died, her body exploded and all the acidic fluid in her organs sprayed everyone in the room. Luckily we survived. Except for Jim. He was holding her hand so he got the brunt of it. And that's when I remembered holding my father's hand. At the bottom of his stairs, where he'd been lying for two days before I found him. We were waiting for the ambulance. I was trying to act calm, nonchalant, about the fact that his broken legs looked like they were headed off in different directions. That I was kneeling in a sticky pool of blood and his life was leaking out all around me in the musty hallway. Oh, darling, he said, your hands are very comforting. And I laughed. I was nervous. I said, are they now? Would you ever fuck off? And he did. Well, I didn't know he was about to die, obviously. But you know what? I probably wouldn't change it. He'd have thought it was funny. (laughs) And there was nothing that I really needed to say to him as such anymore. My father was most often described to me as a character. And I came to understand that that word meant different things. Sometimes it meant funny, spontaneous, eccentric, great man for a party. And then other times, absent, alcoholic. He was in complete denial about the fact that he even had a daughter for years after I was born. He never told his friends or his family about me. Once, in a particular teenage rage, I didn't contact him for two years. And I don't think he cared. Or even really noticed. Or if he did, he certainly didn't let on. But a few years before he died, he changed. He became really interested in me in how I was and where I was and what I was doing and when he was going to see me for dinner or coffee or pinties. (laughs) He remembered my birthdays. He came to my shows. He was on time for appointments. We went on a holiday. And I think it was because he had become aware of his own mortality. He wasn't sick now or anything, but he had hit 70 realised that he probably actually was going to die at some point and my stock went up. You're my daughter, Joanne. You're my legacy, darling. All of a sudden, I was important. He wanted to travel to London to put his name on my birth cert and at the time, I thought it was just a gesture for me. But really, it was for him so that his name could live on in connection with another's. Well, wasn't he lucky that he had a daughter knocking around at the 11th hour when he decided he wanted one? And that's what was sloshing around in my hungover brain on my 35th birthday. What happens if I wake up when I'm 70 and I freak out about my legacy? Tough shit. I'll have to adopt a panda or something. I'm bound to have a child at some point, though, aren't I? Although what if I don't? What if I can't? What if I never could in the first place? I mean, like, I've never gotten pregnant. You know, I suppose I've been careful enough for the most part. But you'd think I'd have had one slip at this stage, wouldn't you? And even if I'm not barren yet, I will be soon. Do you know, I read somewhere that a baby girl is born with all the eggs she'll ever have. And 11,000 of them die every month. Every month. There was a woman on the late, late the other night who had a baby and she was in her 50s. Jesus, ma'am, get out of my head. Anyway, even if it is possible, if I have a womb like the Nile Valley and eggs coming out my ears, do I want to have a child? 
And when am I going to make that decision? Like, do I just wait around and hope that it'll all become clear one day? That I'll figure it out by fucking osmosis? You could be waiting forever for the cows to come home. And should they might never come home. 11,000, like, every month. I'll be lucky if I've enough left to make an omelette. Oh, fucking starving, actually. That's probably what's wrong with me. I need food. And lilt. Because you can't be existential if you're drinking lilt. With a totally tropical taste. With a totally tropical taste. Lilt. And that's how it started. A birthday that my mother couldn't really accept and my father couldn't really attend and a massive hangover. For most of the preceding 34 years, I'd been blissfully unaware of my ovaries. Once I got over the mess and shame of periods in my teens, I quite liked the reassuring rhythm of it all. If anything, I was angry that periods got such bad press that they were something we were taught to fear and despise, when actually embracing the cycle could give us an edge to be accessed throughout the month in a natural blueprint for success. But most of all, having a period meant not being pregnant. And any sexually active person will tell you that however careful you are, that is always a relief. Kids were a, a someday distant maybe. After the degrees and the postgrads and the drugs. And then off gallivanting the globe, having different careers and international adventure and crack. All the men I went out with wanted weddings and babies. I thought they were mad. There may have been moments very fleeting moments when I considered the possibility that I might have gotten things a bit arseways. That the girls I'd played with on the street and gone to school with and pitied for having babies in their twenties might be feeling sorry for me. But most of the time I just didn't think about it. I assumed it would all sort itself out on its own somehow. And I was happy. When your head's in the sand... The whole world is your hat. But something had shifted. Something had changed. And the next thing I knew, I was on... The Internet. Medical chief warns, women who postpone having babies may stay childless. Today we're asking... Should you wait to have kids? New book claims everything we thought we knew about fertility. Getting pregnant after 35, far easier than fertility falls off a cliff at 35. NHS chief warns women not to wait. I wanted to freeze my eggs and they told me I didn't have any Today we're making a Spanish omelette. The country faces a fertility Fertility falls off a cliff at 35. alcohol can make you infertile. Ten ways your home is making you infertile. And that led to this. Standing outside a fortune teller's house in the pissing rain and Nina. Now, in fairness, I'm an atheist and a rationalist. I think that's a lot of your trouble. But in desperation, I had decided to think outside the box to help me figure out what to do with my box and, well, here I was... Any concerns I might have had about her having real psychic abilities vanished as soon as she opened the door. Sorry, love. Are you waiting long? I can't hear that bell in the kitchen. I didn't know you were there at all. Come in anyways, and you're very welcome. It was a small room, covered with runes, crystals, wizards, angels, pictures of Our Lady and Egyptian gods. She wasn't taking any chances. She produced a pack of cards. I knew it was bullshit. But I thought, maybe if she mentioned that I'd have a child, you know, or 20 of them, or that I wouldn't, that I might have some kind of emotional reaction one way or the other, like of relief or disappointment or something, and then that might help me figure out what I wanted. Have you a brother? No. 
Have you a sister? No. Well, it's just you, so. Jesus. Have you any nephews? I know, sure, you couldn't have. Cousins. You have. Well, that's one of them. Blondie-haired lad. And you see the way he's upside down? Does he live in Australia or something? She was sort of half right about the brother. I'd gotten a phone call, out of the blue, from the undertaker who arranged my father's removal. Hello? Is that Joanne? Hi, Jerry. How are you? How are you? Sorry to bother you. Look, this is a bit sensitive now. There's no easy... Go on, go on, Jerry. You're all right. I got a call today from a man who says he's your father's son. He wanted to know... He wanted a, a contact number for whoever arranged the funeral. I didn't give him any information, of course, but I took his name and number, and I have it here. I'm sorry about this. The son? Right? Yes. Okay. What did he sound like? I mean, like, is he my age, would you say, or... I don't know... Older? Younger? Uh, Older, I think. I'm not sure. What's his name? Eugene. A brother called Eugene. From the Greek, meaning good genes or well-born. Which, when you think about it, is kind of an optimistic name to give to an adopted child. His birth mother my father's girlfriend in the 60s, had finished her banking exams in Dublin and gone home to Tralee for the summer. She felt a bit ill, went to the doctor, was found to be pregnant and was transferred immediately to a home until her son was born, taken from her and given to a childless couple in their 50s in Roscommon. So, I did... Actually, in fact, at that time, have a brand spanking new 52-year-old half-brother. But I wasn't used to saying it out loud yet. And I certainly wasn't about to get into it all with this fruitcake. You pal around with a red-headed girl? No. No? Are you friends with a blonde or a dark-haired girl? Um... Well, you pick your friends very carefully anyway, and you go to them for advice and with all your problems. She was right about that too, in fairness. I did eventually go to them for help. And my family. For all the good it did me. There's never a right time to have kids. It wasn't a choice. It wasn't planned. I never felt I had a hole in my uterus that only a baby could fill. I've always loved children. Especially babies. That's probably why I've had so many. The social and emotional cost of having a baby is huge. I don't see myself passing on my genes to any other person. I didn't understand the sacrifice that was going to be involved. I haven't had sleep in four years. I never see my friends. I can't remember getting too much out of it when they were younger. But the love I feel for them can't be put into words. They give you love constantly. Just love you for who you are. And that's the best reward you could ever have. The only reason I can think of to have a child... Is that so when I'm old, somebody can come and wipe my ass? It's actually existentially quite weird. I'm just not convinced that I'd want to bring a child into the current world. That I can't protect and will always worry about. Kind of feels like your heart is on the outside of your body. Tell your mother to mind her feet. She needs to get a wide-fitting, comfortable shoe, tell her. To mind her? Oh, you love animals. Not really. Do you not? It's your daughter who does so. I've a daughter? Yeah, you'll have a daughter. She'll be mad into animals, horses especially. And you'll have a son then and he'll have you wrapped around his little finger, be looking up at you with his big eyes. He will, I'm telling you. When? Uh, September maybe, this year. What? Oh no, no, next year, so. Next year? Uh, Or the year after. The year after? Oh, just calm down. We'll get the pendulum. How old did you say you were, love? Thirty-five. Well, you have until you're 41-ish, so will we say, what, um, 37? We will. Let me steady the pendulum. Should Joanne have a baby when she's 37? Look, 
happening? Yes, it's after saying. There you are now. Tell your mother to mind those feet. And if you're buying a house, make sure you can have an open fire in it. I this place bought and all before I realised there was no chimney. Fifty euros. She must be worth a fortune. Oh, wait. I'll do you one of my new cards before you go. For luck. Merlinia. That's a good one. He's like a whatchamacall, a wizardy angel. Here, wait till I tell you what it says. You are confused and indecisive because you do not have enough information. Seek expert advice before making a decision. Now. The wizardy angel had a point. I realised I needed to find out whether I even could have a child before I started worrying about whether I wanted one or where I keep her horse. Welcome to the fertility clinic. How can I help? Hi. I just wanted to know, I suppose, what services you provide. Well, that very much depends. Are you trying to have a baby? No. But you're planning on having a baby soon? No. I don't think so. I don't know if I want one at all, actually. That's why I'm here. What? Well, I thought maybe I should find out where I stand, you know, fertility-wise, and then that might help me make a decision, so... I see. And you have a partner? No. Well, yeah, kind of. But this doesn't have anything to do with him. Doesn't have anything to do with him? Not at the moment, no. (laughs) But you're going to be having the baby together? No, I don't think so. I don't know. Probably not. If you're going to be having a baby together, you should come to the clinic together. That's how it works, usually. Okay. But surely people who don't have partners, or people who only kind of have partners and don't want their partners to know, come to be tested as well? No. What, never? No. Not one single, single person? Not really. Okay. Well, is it possible to just, I don't know, get my eggs counted or whatever on my own? Is that possible? Here's a brochure. I had just started seeing a Dublin man called Rob, but we'd really only spent a few weekends together at that point and were very much still at the stage where it is crucial to pretend that you are cool and flawless and sane. So I had decided against telling him that I was in the early throes of trying to figure out if I ever wanted to have a child and that I probably needed to make a decision fairly soon given my age and family history of early menopause but that I was really confused and I was thinking of getting my eggs counted to see if the decision had already been made for me by years of smoking or just nature. Or that even if it hadn't, maybe just at the moment of getting the results, like a a gut feeling of what I actually really wanted would suddenly surface. And I didn't see that any of that needed to involve him, necessarily. Or at all, really. But then I thought maybe I should tell him, in case he found the fertility clinic brochure hidden in my apartment and thought I was a psycho, which I'm not. So the next time I was with Rob on our first city break together in Lisbon I got mangled on some local brew that I think was made from the bodies of dead alcoholics and Rob Listen I need to talk to you about something okay So I'm 35 I know That's not the thing I mean I need to figure out if I'm ever going to have a child Like not now Jesus but ever, 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 ever. But I haven't got a clue, like, fucking zero. So I'm thinking of getting my eggs counted. Huh? My eggs counted. Your eggs? To see if I even can. Or maybe I'll get the results and, like, Anyway, the most important thing is that none of this has got anything to do with you, all right? None of it anything to do with me. I'm only telling you because there's a fertility clinic, a brochure in my place. A brochure. And I don't want you to find it and think I'm... 
because I'm not. So that's all about that. We were sitting on a lumpy sofa in a freezing Airbnb apartment at the top of a vertical hill that I had impulse booked because it had a bath in the sitting room. And Rob said, Wow. Wow. That's really interesting. Interesting? Yeah. I think it's really important. And now that I think about it, I'm in the same boat, really. Yeah? I know, maybe, as a man, I don't have the same time pressure, but I have no idea if I want kids either. Or even if I can have them. Maybe I should get my sperm counted. Maybe that will help me decide as well. Yeah? Yeah. We can just both find out on our own. Yeah. Yeah. Not as a couple. As humans. Yeah. It's not about us having a kid together or anything. It's just about finding out where we stand. Making informed decisions. Informed decisions. That's great. Oh, I feel much better now. I'm going to have another bath. And so it was that just two months after we met, Rob and I ended up looking anxiously at our baby-making stats together. I had an ovarian reserve of 34.9, which the internet said was a normal amount of that to have for my age. Rob had a sperm count of 29 million per milliliter, which is completely disgusting, but also entirely average. I asked him how he felt. He said that he thought he was relieved that the option hadn't been taken away from him, but that he was no closer to knowing whether or not he actually wanted to have a child. I said I felt the same. I told him that I was thinking of writing a show to help me figure it all out. Ah, uh, you're not going to base your whole life around this thing, are you? But don't worry, I lied. Even if we're still together when I do, you definitely won't be in it. After my father died, I started attracting men who were a bit like him. Funny, charming, misogynistic arseholes. So I took a break from all men for one year. And at the end of that year, I went on Tinder. I know that this will do nothing to explode culty myths and stereotypes, but in Limerick, my Tinder catchment was comprised mainly of bizarre profile pictures of tractors... Combine harvesters, horses, ga trophies, mammies, and in some cases, actual road frontage. I was just about to give up on the whole thing when I went to Dublin for a workshop and spotted Rob online. We matched on Monday, chatted till Thursday, went for dinner on Friday before I got the last bus back to Limerick, and my first ever Tinder date turned out to be my last. Well, you never know. Rob wasn't a misogynistic arsehole and he didn't own a tractor. And after a happy whirl of dates and puns and city breaks, both off our tits on oxytocin, all the talk of to baby or not to baby made us hyper aware of all things neonatal. We were delighted when people we knew had babies... I mean, we were delighted for them, obviously, but mostly overjoyed because it meant we could ransack the baby aisles of TK Maxx for baby finalia! Ah, oh, that's so cute! Look at this one! Oh, Rob, 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 look, look, look! Lavender muslin swaddling with grey satin etching. It's practical and elegant. This owl quilt is covered in owls and it comes with owl mittens... And an owl hat! That's fucking adorable! We'll get two of those! Before dashing to our friends in the hospital. How did it go? Oh, gross. Can we smell your newborn baby now, please? Until 
to absolutely nobody's surprise, Rob revealed that he'd really like to have one too. At some point. With me, ideally. We were on another city break together in Budapest. Drunk this time as well, I suppose. We were on a boat that used to be a Ukrainian stone hauler in the 60s. Now a floating music venue that Lonely Planet had voted the best bar in the world. And we were a little bit tipsy. Of course. And that's when Rob told me that he'd been thinking a lot and that he thought that he did really want to have a child. We passed a couple of hours imagining our maybe future selves in our maybe future lives and it was fun. It was exciting. It was a bit like playing The Sims, you know, like, would it be Limerick? Would it be Dublin? What's the kitchen like? How does it all work? But the next morning, after a bit of sober reflection, I realised that, well, I was happy for him that he'd figured out his place in the colour scheme of it all. But that didn't really change much for me. Because through no fault of his own, as a man, Rob had a much more straightforward journey to that decision. All he was really agreeing to do was have sex without a condom, maybe many times, which in sacrifice terms is the equivalent of me saying, I won't have any dinner tonight, thanks. I'll just have chocolate ice cream cake. My role, on the other hand, was to build the entire fucking thing inside my body for the best part of a year, with all the incumbent sickness, discomfort, disfigurement, pain, inconvenience, incontinence, job loss and health risk that comes with it. And then to somehow expel the baby from my body via my gesion, which I was reliably informed by friends, might involve having to have my arse stitched back together again. And then buckling in for six months to a year of feeding the baby every few hours via my, frankly, at the best of times, painfully sensitive nipples. If things could be different, I asked him. If I just had to have the chocolate sex cake and you could do all the rest, would you? And after a few minutes of making the weird clopping noise he makes when he's seriously thinking something over, he had to admit that... No, I probably wouldn't. And even if we could magically summon a baby up without any of the horror movie and we both just had to eat chocolate sex cake to make one appear, we knew that it still wasn't the same ask. 1950. The church opposes Minister Noel Brown's mother and child scheme claiming gynaecological care in the state should be in line with Catholic moral teaching. 1963. The contraceptive pill is introduced in Ireland but can only be prescribed as a cycle regulator. 1969, Ireland's first family planning clinic opens on Marion Square. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. 1971, members of the Irish Women's Liberation Movement rebel and travel by train to Belfast to purchase contraceptives for their own personal use. 1979, Minister for Health Charles Hawhey legalises contraception, but it's only available to married couples from a doctor for bona fide family planning purposes. So I was conceived. Not long after my birth, my mother was given the gift of a book that she still has at home called First Baby After Thirty. It was published in 1982, when my mother was a single parent living in a home for homeless mothers and babies in North London, listening to a colicky me screaming for most of the day and all of the night. This book, the subtitle states, is all about choices. It was for women who had decided to do what were, at the time, quite modern things, like go to college and have a career, before finally realising, like Macaulay Culkin's shitty mother in Home Alone, fuck it, I'm after forgetting the kids. The pregnant women in the pictures have a lot of pubic hair and they wear full body lycra. But the disturbing thing 
is the chapter called Fathers and Fatherhood, which says things like, Women over 30 may be surprised to learn that nowadays many men enjoy babysitting from time to time. And when the baby is very young, there is no reason why the father cannot partake in some childcare duties occasionally to give the mother some much-needed rest. At first, I laughed. I thought, wow, it sounds like every mother was a single parent in the 80s. How very hilarious. And in the past. But then I looked around. And I heard men who I know and I like talk about babysitting their own children. I heard women discuss childcare arrangements. I saw men who desperately wanted to parent their children more, but who weren't supported culturally or constitutionally to do so. I heard that the narrative had changed for women, but I also saw that if nothing else had changed, that just meant women had to do everything, and it was worse, not better. And I saw some of those women struggling, really struggling. I didn't hear men talk much about what happened to their creative or professional lives after having a child. And I realised that's because there isn't a lot to tell. It's literally business as usual. I saw a man holding a baby and people gushing and their faces saying, Oh, would you look, he's holding a baby. Isn't he amazing? And a woman holding a baby and people's faces saying, her cardigan is on inside out and she isn't holding that baby properly. I saw fathers frustrated with strangers assuming they needed help with their own kids because not woman. And seeing all this, I know I can't change it. So how can I choose it? 1981. The Criminal Law Act makes it illegal for a man to have sex with a woman without her consent making rape a crime for the first time in Ireland. 1983. The Eighth Amendment, which equates the right to life of the unborn with its mothers, is approved. 1985. The Health Act allows for the sale of condoms, but they can only be sold in chemists, doctors' surgeries and family planning clinics. 1989. Changes to the Criminal Law Act means a husband can now be found guilty of raping his wife. 1992. The X case leads to freedom of travel. My mother didn't have it easy. But at least she didn't have to make a decision. Circumstance made it for her. I was conceived accidentally during drunken breakup sex in April 1979 in the Limerick Inn Hotel. There should really be a blue plaque outside commemorating that. And that was it. There were no €1.50 pregnancy tests and deals then, so she had to go to a doctor in Ennis, a safely discreet distance from her home, to get the news. He told her that she was pregnant, but that she wasn't to worry, because he would arrange everything. Arrange what? she asked him. Everything he said casually, having said it so many times before. The home, the adoption, the disappearing. And I was a 32-year-old woman then. It wasn't as if I was 16 or anything. And because she was a 32-year-old, well-travelled, independent woman, she was able to do what the mother of my father's first child 17 years earlier couldn't. She left the surgery, left her job, left the country, got a boat to London and spent the rest of her pregnancy sleeping on a camp bed in a friend's bedsit in Finchley, probably with springs sticking up into her arse, but safe from the doctors and judgment and nuns and homes and churches of Ireland. And on the 22nd of January 1980, at 6.45am, I was born. One minute I was chatting away to the doctors about the IRA bombings and the next minute you were there. Sure I didn't know what was happening. I was delivered by Professor Ian Croft, who not only had the distinct honour of being the first person to touch my arse, 
but was also the pioneer of test tube babies and fertility treatments in the world. The same man who went on to found the London Fertility Clinic. I was literally born into the arms of a new age. An age of IUI, IVI and IVF. Technology to help you get pregnant, but more crucially for me up to this point, technology to stop you getting pregnant. The pill, morning after pill. Injections, implants, patches and super extra ultra strong condoms that are ribbed and dotted for everyone's pleasure and are as easy to break as the black box in a Boeing. I am part of the first generation of humans, in this country at least, for whom the days of getting unavoidably pregnant, of it being an inevitable biological consequence of sex, are all but over. And it's great to have the luxury of choice, but it means I have to make a fucking decision. Pros and cons. Um, tech support. Tech support. My mother calls me on her landline to talk her through turning on her mobile. Who knows what kind of help I'll need. Um, legacy. Although what my potential children may potentially achieve is their legacy, not mine. Also, my child may turn out to be an idiot or a murderer. They all have parents. The environment. Having a child will send my carbon footprint through the roof. It's pretty unforgivable. And the world is grossly over... Oh, fuck it. Overpopulation. Having someone to look after me when I'm older. I was my mother's full-time carer for a while and I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't been there. I would have been fucked, really. Excuse my language. But I don't want to put someone else in that position, so... Judgment. In the 80s, good parenting meant remembering to leave the window in your car open a little bit when you locked your kids outside a pub for two hours with potatoes and a mineral before driving them home drunk. That is no longer the case. Did you have a natural birth? Are you breastfeeding? Are you using a sling? Are you no-cry sleep training? Are you baby signing? Oh, are you not? Is that homemade? Is it locally sourced? Is it nut-free? Is it gluten-free? Is it dairy-free? Is it egg-free? Is it sugar-free? Is it BPA-free? Is it eco-friendly? Is it fair trade? Is it free-range? Is it 100% cotton? Is it natural bamboo? Is it organic? Are you organic? Am I fucking organic? Parenting is an endless triage of difficult decisions that you are constantly judged for. Happiness. I love kids. Even just seeing one makes me smile, so... I imagine that that joy would be magnified immensely if the child was my own. I never knew what it was to be happy until I had you. Although research says that actually the drop in happiness that occurs after having a child, especially in the first year, is worse than divorce or the death of a spouse. The world is a fantastic place. It's full of delicious curries and meringue and beaches and art and it would be really nice to give someone else the chance to experience all of that. But it's also full of inequality, rising fascism, war, torture, poverty, cruelty, mass displacement. Can you give over now, please, Joanne? You're giving me a migraine. 2000. Ireland and Greece are the only EU countries without a licensed morning-after pill. 2005. The UN criticises Ireland for its persistent, stereotypical views of the social roles and responsibilities of women and its restrictive abortion laws. 2011. The morning-after pill becomes available over-the-counter, but pharmacists can still refuse to dispense it for moral reasons. 2012. Savita. 2016. A major international survey of gender and parenting finds that Ireland is the most unequal in the world, with just 7% of unpaid childcare done by men. I'm scared. 
scared of everything changing. But probably just as scared of things staying the same. I'm frightened of who I'll be if I have a child. And of who I might become if I don't. I'm scared that I won't be enough. That you'll see through me. That I'll hear you say my name in disappointment or in shame. That I won't get the balance right. I'll give too little or too much. I'm scared of all the risks involved. You might get sick. What if you die? I'm scared that I'll have you and regret it. That's an awful thing to say. But not having you and regretting that might be worse. I'm scared that Rob will leave me. What if he decides that he wants to have a child more than he wants to be with me? Like not this year or next year, but in five years or ten years. Who knows? He can. Or what if I have you? And he leaves us. I'm scared that I'll miss the me I was before and then resent you for it. Or feel guilty that you're on your own and feel like I have to give you a sister or a brother and how am I going to take care of two children and my mother? I might not be around. What? None of us were promised tomorrow and I'm getting on. You're not even 70. I'm coming up to it. You can just put me in a home. I might. Or take me to Switzerland. Jesus. Hey, Siri. Would I be a good parent? According to all the tests, whose other tests include Does he like me? Do boys want to fuck me? And Am I stupid? I would be 60% a good parent. On Quiblo.com, I deal with issues of my fictional child's teenage pregnancy. My promiscuous daughter's name is Liablo, which I find more upsetting than her sexual behaviour. On Hello Quizzy, I wrangle with heady issues, like my teenage son taking pictures of girls' underwear at school, biting and having phobias. I'm happy to say I rose to the challenge. 94% great parent! Would you ever pull the plug out of that stupid internet and get a life years old? 2017. The Me Too campaign goes viral. 2018. Ireland votes by a 66.4% yes majority to repeal the Eighth Amendment and end its constitutional ban on abortion. Abortion legislation is signed into Irish law. I think Rob would be a good father. He's thoughtful, kind, reliable and patient. And he's funny. Well, he's good at dad jokes anyway. We have fun. Everyone loves him. I love him. What would it be like? They'd cut your cord and hand you over all wrinkly and wriggling, a bit bloody, crying. I'd be crying too, so'd Rob. Relieved it's all over and so happy to see you. It was like having a doll, except you were human. Would you look like me? The only thing I prayed is that you wouldn't have big nose like mine. They'd hand you to Rob and he'd stick out his tongue to see if you mimic because we saw this thing on YouTube. (laughs) And you would. I'd sit for hours watching you sleep. Study your eyebrows, your eyelashes, your lips. I suppose there was a bit of you that I didn't take in. The first week would pass somehow and then the second. I suppose your first birthday, your first Christmas... Watching your face as you taste your first tastes to find out what you like. Strawberries. Apple. (laughs) Slice of lemon once just for the laugh. You still love cheese. I can imagine wondering 
how I could ever have been without you. On a blanket in the park, you, me and Rob, you pick up a flower, a bluebell, and waddle back unsteady to offer it. Yeah. So open and giving. Until you blades of grass, you'd be there, mesmerised by them. What you call this is just grass, Joanne. But it's not like that grass. Rob playing with you on the floor in our front room. He's singing a song about bums. You laughing. Washing you in the sink. My mother holding you for the first time, entranced. I can imagine thinking, I'll remember this. But you had the answer for everything. Hearing your voice and all it can say, your thoughts, your ideas, I could watch you take in the world. It didn't matter how many times she'd done it, but you'd still be full of wonder and you'd say, oh, this is beautiful. Rob says he's open now to us having a child or not. And if we don't, I think we could have a really great life together. And even if we do decide to try, we might not be able to. A lot of people can't. And I'm really not at all sure that we will. I mean, even the names I've come up with for you are still very Eggy, Benedict, Shelley, Yoko. Whatever you decide, Joanne, will be an adventure for you. But I've thought about it enough to know now that life will be brilliant and shit and worth living either way. Like a soul this been. That was Existentialism, written and performed by Joanne Ryan, featuring the voice of Gloria Ryan. Eamon Hunt played The Undertaker. Joan Sheehy played The Fortune Teller. Rex Ryan played Rob and Georgina Miller played The Receptionist. All other roles were performed by the company. Existentialism by Joanne Ryan was directed by Veronica Coburn. Sound design was by Sinead Diskin. Sound supervision by Kieran Dunn and Kieran Cullen. The producer for RTE was Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. The radio version was adapted from the stage show of the same name.